Never was justice more perfect. Never was civilization higher. Now, do you think that good scholar might have paid some attention to that? I should have. The reason I didn't is because she was talking about Indian women. And what I knew deeper than I even knew I knew was that Indian women had nothing to teach white women. That's how deep racism poisoned my scholarship. This is The Land You're On, acknowledging the Haudenosaunee. Interviews and conversations with indigenous community members and allies, providing the context and perspective needed to understand the complicated history of the land you're on. Dr. Sally Rush Wagner teaches in the Honors Program at Syracuse University. A major historian of the suffrage movement, she was awarded one of the first doctorates in the country for women's studies at UC Santa Cruz and founded one of the first college-level women's studies programs at CSU Sacramento. How did the Haudenosaunee influence the women's rights movement? Well, I have to laugh at myself about this because I think that if a graduate student had come to me with the idea that Native women influenced the women's rights movement, which is my, my area of interest has been the women's rights movement in the 19th century. If they'd come to me with the idea that there was a, a native influence on the women's rights movement, I would have said to them 30 years ago, 40 years ago now, I would have said, no, I, I don't think so. If there was, somebody would have seen that. There's no evidence of it. That's the place I was when I came kicking and screaming into being dragged into the knowledge that I'll now share with you. It was nothing I set out looking for. And you know what I finally realized? I should have come to it much earlier. Matilda Jocelyn Gage, who is the suffragist that I've dedicated my life to bringing into knowledge after she was written out of history by the conservative women's rights movement. In her major work, Woman, Church, and State, within the first 10 pages, she has a statement, never was justice more perfect, never was civilization higher. Now, do you think that a good scholar might have paid some attention to that? I should have. The reason I didn't is because she was talking about Indian women. And what I knew deeper than I even knew I knew was that Indian women had nothing to teach white women. That's how deep racism poisoned my scholarship. Confederacy. My name is Diane Shenandoah. I introduced my native name. I am part of the Wolf Clan of the Oneida Nation, and my role here is Hoiadinianomazic, which means one who helps. I'm a faith keeper, and as a faith keeper, it is part of our governmental structure, and I have served in this capacity since 1988. To start off with, the United States government copied our governments, and um, we have 50 chiefs at city council, all who are chosen by their clan mothers. It is the clan mothers that dictate who will be in that office, who serves as that role. It is a lifetime position, and the 
clan mother has the right to dehorn him or to remove him from that position. So the clan mothers are more or less the ones that oversee the government functions. And it is the, the chiefs that are to go out and carry the voice of the people under the direction of the clan mothers. And the faith keepers are, are more on the spiritual side of things. It is our responsibilities to carry out our beliefs, share our beliefs to you know the, the upcoming generations. We are to oversee when the ceremonies are done, when certain spiritual elements are needed in a governmental structure. My work with rematriation has really been about bringing forward the voice of Indigenous women to be able to share messages to the world about what the responsibilities are that all people have to care for the water, to care for the foods that we eat, to care for our children, to make sure that we're thinking about seven generations into the future. Michelle Shenandoah is the editor of Rematriation magazine, a digital multimedia storytelling platform. So rematriation is returning the sacred to the mother and thinking about, well, what is the mother? Yes, it is us as women, but it's also everything that gives life to that ultimate life giver of Mother Earth. Rematriation as a definition was one that I said has to make its way into the dictionary. I've spent a lot of time with our leadership throughout our Confederacy, and in particular, there is one clan mother who I have a great deal of respect for because she has really worked to bring back that integrity of the role of our women and of our children and helping all of us to become closer to our culture and our traditional teachings in a very active way in our daily lives today. And she was talking a lot about rematriation when she would go out and give public talks or even talking among the women and talking among, you know, our youth. And I asked her, you know, can you give me a definition of rematriation? And she conceptualized what all of it is and also let me know that the origins of the word actually comes out of traditional midwifery. When a child is born, all of the elements that come with the child, including the umbilical cord and the placenta, these are returned back to the earth in ceremony. They're sacred elements of life and helping to bring life into this world. And so they're returned back into the earth. And that's the process of rematriation. I looked at the word repatriation, which is to return a person or an object back to its original country or owner, the patriarch. The Western world has always sort of been situated in that perspective, which is that everything belongs to the man, from the land to the children to the money to the economy. Whatever it is, it was all very centered around men, around the man of the house. So thinking about rematriation as a process and a returning what is it that we're returning? And it's that sacred relationship that we have with life. Life being centered around women, around the mother and our ultimate mother, that's the definition, rematriation, returning the sacred to the mother. Joanne Shenandoah, accompanied by sister Diane Shenandoah, recorded at Blue Mountain Lake in the Adirondacks. So it's a beautiful thing to be a clan mother. Our mother was a clan mother. And she was divine, beautiful spirit, loved to give, and held our community together. So in honor of 
all those women who do that for their communities. We give them right now a great honor to sing a song to them. When a yo way yo, I Sally Rush Wagner's book, Sisters in Spirit, Haudenosaunee Influence on Early American Feminists, documents the authority of Native women and how that perspective resonated throughout the suffragist movement. Alice Fletcher is an early ethnographer. She tells this story. She said, I was with a group of Omaha Nation women, and uh, she was living with them, the LaFleche family, and she said... um, and my hostess gave away a horse. And I immediately said, hadn't you better check with your husband? She says, the merriment with which my statement was met, I had forgotten just for a moment that I was not with white women. Why would you check with your husband? Well, married women in the United States under the Blackstone Code, which was adopted after the revolution, and what it does is it defines woman, once she marries, as dead in the law. It's not that you have maybe a few rights that you don't have. You're dead in the law. You don't exist legally. So, of course, you couldn't own your property. You know, you're non-existent. You can't vote. You're non-entity. You have no right to your children. Husbands in New York State, on their deathbed, could will away an unborn child. So can you imagine? They have contact with these women who I know what I experience as a second-wave feminist today, being around Haudenosaunee women and being in the community. And it's like I'm constantly saying, do you realize what just happened? Nothing happened in terms of their awareness. And for me, I just saw a vision of the world I want to help create. Elizabeth Cady Stanton writes about the clan mother cutting off the horns of the chief. Clan mother putting in position and holding in position, and then if he does not represent his responsibilities, removing him 
And Elizabeth Cady Stanton is just cutting off the horns of the chief. You know, it's like unbelievable. A woman could have that kind of authority. So they saw a vision of the world that they wanted to create. You know who saw it? The ones who had divested themselves of Christianity. The women who could not see it were the women who believed that they were doing a service to Native people by bringing them to the truth, bringing them to the true way. And the colonization that was done with the very best intentions by the very finest, kindest people is, to me, the biggest warning to myself. You know, the biggest damage was done by those who they trusted the most. So when we look today at the current context of gender and gender equality, I think one of the things that the foremothers of the suffrage movement and the women's rights movement missed was the understanding that the Haudenosaunee women had that we hold this elevated status around life and life-giving and what that power means. Whereas they saw a world that seemed very equal and women had full autonomy and authority, owned our homes, you know, had say over our children and also were in charge of the land. It was a really very different world than the one that they knew. So they wanted to model their lives after the Haudenosaunee women. But that was the piece that they didn't really perhaps understand, right? When you look at the cultural context, that was the element that was missing. And so as we move forward in today, and as Haudenosaunee people, you know, talk about these roles and responsibilities that women have and men have, some people will look at that through a very westernized lens and say, whoa, whoa, that sounds like we're moving backward in time. But again, that is really not understanding the deeper teachings about what that power is to really be a woman. We have a close connection that we have with our Mother Earth We have dances specific to honor women and that relationship where our feet caress the ground and our feet never leave the ground because it's really nurturing that spirit and that energy, that life-giving force between Mother Earth because she's the ultimate mother, the ultimate life force and giver of life. And so women are also a conduit of that energy and our men are really the protectors of that life. And that's the role and function that they have. And so the men follow the sun. And the sun, what does he do? He shows up every day and he brings warmth to us. He brings smiles to our faces. He helps us to grow. That's the example that they follow. He is their teacher. And the women follow the moon. So what do women do? We cycle every 28 days, just as the moon cycles every 28 days. She's in charge of the waters. And what are we all born in? Water. So those are some of the core tenets of who we are and parts of ourselves that we share with the world for others to think about. Because as humankind, none of us are free from any of those forces. They're bigger and greater than all of us. Within the Haudenosaunee teachings, understanding that women are life givers and that relationship that we have with the earth, there's an understanding that women hold an elevated status within this life way because 
We are these vessels of life. And therefore, in that role and responsibility that men have as protectors is protecting that space and not in this patriarchal, westernized sense that somehow women are not as strong. In fact, no, it's the understanding that women are incredibly strong and incredibly powerful for those who've, you know, participated or been very close to, you know, the process of birth, you understand that that becomes a very sacred space and that you have to protect it, right? You have to be able to create that safe environment for a, a baby to be born into the world. As a white scholar, I was likely to get it wrong. I was likely to miss the important. I was likely to misinterpret and I was likely in the process to do damage. So the one thing that I knew was I had to proceed very, very slowly. What I did was I started with what she had written. Then I looked at everything that she had read that led her to that idea that this was the highest civilization had reached, indigenous people. She was specifically pointing to the Haudenosaunee as the example, but she was writing about indigeneity in general as well. So then I looked at what any of her colleagues had written, and I found Elizabeth Cady Stanton had similarly been impacted by the Haudenosaunee. And then I found other suffragists. And then I found, what were her contemporaries saying? What was she reading? What was going on in the newspapers? I went through a hundred years of the newspapers in the Onondaga Historical Association collection. Went through a lot of things in special collections at Syracuse University. And there were some really important finds there, some really important connections. One of them, if I could just do a little anecdote, I was with uh, Jeannie Shenandoah, a friend of mine from Onondaga Nation, and we were going through a bound copy of Gage's newspaper, The Nationalist Citizen and Ballot Box. He edited it for four years, 1878 to 1881. It was the official newspaper of the National Women's Suffrage Association. And as Jeannie and I were going through this volume, which is one of the few copies in the country, and it is in special collections, we come to an editorial that she wrote in 1878 called Indian Citizenship. So, of course, we jumped on it. And in it, what Gage describes is the chiefs gathering in council at Onondaga, as she says, they have since before Columbus, and they're considering a bill that's been introduced into the New York legislature that would give Indian men citizenship. And she gives the decision of the chiefs, which was they would not accept citizenship in New York State. And the reason given is because they are sovereign nation, each of the six nations. And Gage then goes on to say, to force citizenship on Indian men is like forcing it on Canadians or Mexicans. They're sovereign nations, every bit. Justice to the Indians requires living up to the treaties that we have with them. And this is the greatest hypocrisy of the 19th century, that the government is trying to force citizenship on Indian men who don't want it, when it's denying it to women citizens who are demanding it. So she ends it 
with a strategy suggestion. She says, maybe what we should do is take a lesson from the Indian chiefs who last January 1st, when apparently the president would have kind of an open house and people would come in and leave their calling cards. And she says, when when that whole group of chiefs went to the White House and left their calling cards, and on the back of each one of them was a broken treaty. So she's taking strategy from indigenous practices politically at the same time that she's supporting them politically. Now, that's a level of connection, sophisticated connection, that was one of the keys to helping me understand why she was given an honorary adoption into the Wolf Clan of the Mohawk Nation and given a name that actually is still used. Our Haudenosaunee teachings are centered around peace and the women who've been really helpful in helping to deliver that message of peace throughout our Confederacy, particularly a woman named Jigon Sose, who was the messenger alongside the peacemaker, bringing this message of peace to all of our Confederacy and helping to unite our nations. We were warring nations at that time, and a peacemaker came to us with a message of peace that united us and brought us under the form of government that exists today. He had helpers, and one of them being this woman and another man, Hiawatha, and some call him Hiawenta, and they really helped to bring our nations together under this form of democracy and peace and love. And we've existed now as this confederacy for over a thousand years. We're the oldest continuous living democracy anywhere on the world. That's pretty powerful. So I think there's still a lot to be shared. And I think it's really important for people to listen and to hear because we are now at a time in our world where our ultimate mother is really the one who's pushing us and asking us to listen. We're like facing the greatest climate crisis that our humanity has ever known, which we are also largely responsible for creating. And Mother Earth is pushing back. She doesn't have a voice to say, hey, stop but she sure is powerful and she will always win from hurricanes to flooding and tornadoes and fires and increasing temperatures. Those are all her ways of speaking to us and telling us to change our ways and to take her into consideration first before all else. The Land You're On is a production of Access Audio a storytelling initiative of the Special Collections Research Center at the Syracuse University Libraries. Produced by Brett Barry, Bianca Kayela breed Neil Paulus, and Jim O'Connor. Post-production by Silver Hollow Audio. The Land You're On is distributed by WAER Podcasts, available at WAER.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Production help for The Land You're On from Cal Doherty and Kevin Claus. For further information, reading, and educational resources, visit The Land You're On Research Guide, available at soundbeat.org.